Welcome to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast, where we bring you sermons from our teaching team at Flood Church, Lilongwe, Malawi. For more information, you can go to floodchurch.com. We are reading the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through to 18. So it will be a journey. Stick with me, hey? The words will be on the screen as well. Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons or her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn my back on you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Then Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, so she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she, called, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for your scripture, for your spirit, uh, for your story uh, that you have weaved into history, that you brought to its pinnacle with your son, and that is also our story. Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds would be open to what you have for us today. Amen. You may be seated. Um, So before I go on, I have a quick announcement that's from the pastor's desk, uh, which is not my desk, but I'm going to make it anyway, to let you know that uh, we have a wedding coming up for Linda and Innocent. Are Linda and Innocent here? Oh yeah, cool, they're over here. So these guys are getting married, we are super excited on the 30th of March at 9am here, yeah? Cool. So you're all welcome to come join as we celebrate the wedding of Linda and Innocent, but we are required by law to say this. If you have any reason that Linda and Innocent shouldn't be married, you should go to them. If they fail to hear you, you should go to Pastor Humphreys. And that's the end of that. But we can't wait to see you guys uh, get married on the 30th of March. So on the topic of weddings, actually, uh, there's some very famous words in this passage that if you've been to any wedding, probably you recognize. But especially if you've been to a flood wedding, you definitely will recognize. Because there's a passage in here that we uh, use as part of the vows for churches Uh, at the wedding, uh, for weddings that we do here. And that is verse 15 to 18. It's on the slide, but let me read it. Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if death, even death separates you and me. So uh, the last time I actually stood on the stage was two years ago this Tuesday, which was when Humphreys and I got married. Many of you were there on that day. Uh, And that day I cried because that's what I do, but I cried happy tears that day uh, because I was so excited to be pledging my life, to be committing my life, to be entering marriage with Humphreys. It was such a joy. Uh, So it got me wondering when I read this passage and I was assigned to preach about sadness, why I'm preaching the same words that I spoke when I got married. And it got me reflecting about uh, our wedding and say these words. And I realized I didn't simply say these words two years ago because I felt really happy at that point. I didn't simply marry Humphreys because we were happy Because, to be honest, as anybody who's had a wedding, there were elements of stress on that day. There were elements of anxiety and nervousness as well. I also didn't make those words because I was completely sure that Humphreys and I would enter a Disney-style fairy tale where we would live happily ever after. Uh, I know the reality of the world. We'd been together for some time and known that we were two broken, sinful people. Uh, entering marriage. I also didn't say those words because I thought our love is so powerful that it will overcome all odds because again, I was aware 
uh, of our own natures. And I didn't think that we could say those words simply because our ability to commit to each other would be so strong. I knew, and we acknowledged on that day, when we made that commitment to each other, that we would need the strength of the Lord, that we, we would need a Christian community around us, that we would need the grace and mercy of God in our marriage. The reason I made those words, I said those words and made that commitment was because I loved Humphreys, but it's also because I believe in God's redemption. I believe that God is redeeming me. I believe that God has died and offered salvation for me. And I believe that one of the ways God is redeeming me is through my marriage. And I believed that then, that I should pursue this marriage and that uh, God would be shaping me and forming me and teaching me about himself and drawing me closer to him, even in this marriage. Uh, and I've dwelled, as I've dwelled on this passage over the last few weeks, I think I've come to realize that Ruth's motivation for saying these words was not indifferent to my motivation. Even though her circumstances were so different, she was overcome by sadness. She had lost so much that was valuable, and she was on the brink of a difficult decision, but she made these, she said these words, she made this promise to Naomi, I believe, because she believed in a good God who would redeem her. So I just want to look back at the story. I'm going to retell it a little bit. So Naomi has emigrated. Uh, I know for many of us, we've had first-hand experience of emigrating from one country to another, and they emigrated from Bethlehem and Judah to Moab. And actually, the words suggest that they moved with no intent of returning. And they did that because of the famine that was happening, happening in Judah. But actually by doing this, when they moved, that was being disobedient to God. And then when Naomi allowed her uh, Israelite sons to marry Moabite women, that was also against the law. So they acted against God in doing this. And then the story takes the, this dramatic turn and all men in the family pass, leaving only a widow and two widowed daughters-in-law. And I'm going to talk a bit more, but you can kind of, once you picture it like that, there's incredible sadness here already. They've lost loved ones. But not only have they lost loved ones, men were the ones who held position in society. Men owned land. Men farmed and harvested and had income. They lost their loved ones and they lost their social position and they're a multicultural family living uh, in a foreign land, essentially. So Naomi says, makes the decision that she should return home to the land of Judah because she's heard that God's favor has turned. There is food again in Judah. So they set off, and I kind of imagine this. They, they pack everything up, and they're walking down the road. Then they get to the point of no return. You know when you're walking somewhere, and you like say to somebody, here, let me walk you out but you kind of walk to the door and you're like, oh, if I keep going, I have to get shoes and I really have to commit to walking them to the car now. This is the point of no return, so I'll just go back. They reach their point of no return and Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, go back. Choose, choose to go back now. This is the point of no return. Go back to your mother's home. Remarry. Find a new family. Continue to worship the, Moab God, the Moabite gods. Find social security here. Uh, so 
Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, says yes, okay. And she returns back, and that's all we know, to be honest, about the story of Orpah. But Ruth doesn't. Uh, it says that before Orpah turns back, they cling to each other, they weep. There is overwhelming sadness. Now not only have they lost their loved ones, have they lost their home, the one friendship, this powerful friendship between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law is also being lost. Uh, so Orpah turns back, but Ruth says, no, I'll, I think I'll stay. And Naomi advises her again, like she says to her daughter-in-law, I really think you should turn back. Look at the decision your, your sister-in-law has made. I really think you should turn back. But Ruth not only says this promise, she clings to her mother-in-law. And then she says these words. So I just want to point out uh, four kind of characteristics that I think of this promise that highlight to us that Ruth's hope was in God's redemption. And then I'm going to invite Britt up and she's going to talk a bit more about how we see God's redemption in Ruth's story and in our own lives. So Ruth says, where you will go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. And then she says, your people will be my people. And you've got to understand, this is from a young woman who had opportunity to remarry. It was very important in that day to leave a legacy of a son. She had an opportunity to do that. And Naomi has made it very clear that Naomi is old. That window of time is probably closed for Naomi. Uh, which means that uh, Naomi doesn't have a chance for a stable income. She can't go back and get a uh, stable job. Uh, she will have to go back and probably live in the outskirts of town. She will essentially, as a widow in that time, be a beggar, left to co collect the scraps of other people's fields. And Ruth says, where you go, I will go into those places. Then she says, your people will be my people. Uh, and I think this is good for, important for us to understand that as women in a family, once the men were lost, culturally they had no formal family ties left. Their culture did not see them as tethered to one another at all anymore because their men were lost. And Naomi highlights that by saying like the way they could tether each other, the way they could continue to have family ties would be for Naomi to get married have a son, for that son to grow up and then for the girls, for one of these daughters-in-law to marry one of those sons. And that's not really doable. But what Ruth is saying is even though we can't have formal family ties, your people will be my people. We will be a family. We will share our cultural identity. We will share our social identity and we will be a family, is what Ruth is saying to her mother-in-law here. And then she says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Um, and I think when you look at this, like that's a powerful statement to make, hey? And then when you think about it, this is made from a young woman who has a future in front of her to an older woman who has kind of got very little opportunity. You could say that this older woman was destitute. Naomi was impoverished. She was aged. So as I thought about this, I realized Ruth was not at all saying this because she had a hope of a better future with Naomi. 
Uh, and I think the more I thought about this, most people, whether you're here or people you know, emigrate from one country to another or seek asylum or flee or move from one country to another because they seek a better life. And actually, if you read the statistics, the number of people around the world who are fleeing this very day from one country to another because they're seeking a better life is overwhelming. I grew up in Australia, and Australia is an island literally in the middle of nowhere. And what happens in Australia is people get onto boats from Southeast Asia, uh, horrific boats that are not seaworthy, and they're captain of those boats that say, we will take you to this land, Australia, and when you arrive, you will be welcomed. And unfortunately, many of those people are not welcomed, and it's a huge political tension. Uh, the what they call boat people or refugees landing in Australia. And this grew to a huge cultural tension many years ago in Australia that pr provoked one of our TV stations to produce a show called Go Back to Where You Came From. It was really interesting. They took six well-to-do, comfortable, middle-class Australian people who said, go back to where you came from, and they put them on the reverse journey of a refugee. So they put these six people onto a wooden boat out into the sea. I mean, it's a TV show, hey, so there were lots of other boats. And then under the protection of the UN uh, peacekeepers, they took those six Australian people to experience an immigration raid in Malaysia. Then they went and they lived in a refugee camp in northern Kenya. Then they stayed in a slum in Jordan before they finished their journey in the DRC. And this show was well made because you follow the incredibly life-changing journey that these Australian people went on to see the horrific situations these refugees have come from. And you see the softening of these people's hearts from just a hardness to incredible compassion. Uh, but what this show highlights is that when people move, it's to seek a better life. But Ruth doesn't seem to be doing that here, hey? Actually, you would see, it would seem more like Ruth is going on the reverse refugee journey. Ruth is going to a place where she uh, won't have a house or a reliable income. Ruth is going to a place where she won't be able to marry. It was illegal for an Israelite man to take a foreign wife. Ruth is going to a place where her hope of leaving a family legacy of a son is virtually nil, which got me to the question of why. Why would Ruth say, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried? And it got me to the conclusion that there's only one of two places I think Ruth could have been coming from here. Either Ruth was so despairing, it isn't worth anything, it doesn't matter, I give up. Or Ruth had hope that the God of Israel the God of Naomi would rescue and redeem both her and her mother-in-law. <clears throat> the reason I think that it's the second option, the reason I think Ruth said, uh, where you die, I will die, is because of her hope in this God is because she then says, your God will be my God. And it's interesting to think, she's seen, she must have had a good experience of this God to say that, hey? 
like she must have some faith, she must have some trust. But what we see, the picture that's really painted for here of this God is a wrathful, a vengeful God, a God who brings calamity into people's lives because Naomi believed that the sadness she was experiencing, the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons was the consequence of their family's sinful actions against God. Naomi speaks over and over of her bitterness, um, of how God has treated her. And she doesn't say that in a complaining way. She's saying it like, I did wrong. And so these are the consequences of that. That's the God that Ruth has really seen. Yet Ruth says, your God will be my God. Not only does she say that, she acts on it. She then goes with Naomi. She trusts and believes that this God will show kindness and favor to them. And I think the second chapter of Ruth, there's a part where Boaz, uh, I'm going to invite Britt up in a minute. There's a part where Boaz actually affirms this in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, may the Lord repay you. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. By the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He's saying, Ruth, you have trusted a God whose wings you have come to find refuge in. We, I, I have to conclude that Ruth made this promise because she truly, deeply believed that this God would redeem them that this God was good, that this God was faithful. Therefore, I can conclude that Ruth was obedient in this. She didn't just obey her sadness. I mean, I think for me, the lesser sadness would be to stay comfortable, go back to what I know and hide, but she didn't do that. Even though she was sad because of her hope of redemption, she followed God. She sought to obey this God Uh, And she went with her mother-in-law. So now I'm going to invite Britt up, who's going to talk a bit more about, uh, I mean, this is kind of the low point in the story, hey? You're like, ooh, what's going to happen now? Are they going to find hope? And Britt's going to talk a bit more about uh, what happened to Ruth when she did trust God. Thanks, Britt. Good morning, church. It's an honor to stand before you this morning. (laughs) I have been a part of this church for just about three years, and it's been a very blessed three years. So I'm going to start off just right where from Kate left off. So in chapter one of Ruth, Ruth is leaving a place of comfort. In the midst of her sadness, she chooses to obey and follow the Lord instead of finding comfort in worldly pleasures and desires. In chapter two, she decides to feed her family, feed her Naomi. Naomi sends her to a redeemsman, someone to redeem her. In this field, she finds food, she finds barley, she finds the extra food that's on the ground. In chapter three, Boaz and Ruth meet. And this is where Naomi tells, this is where Naomi, or Ruth uh, tells Boaz 
and proposes to Boaz that she wants to marry him. She wants to be redeemed. And in chapter 4, she gets redeemed. So Ruth's hope is, Ruth finds hope in the midst of her sadness by being obedient to the Lord. And this is a very hard thing to do, to put aside her sadness and to be obedient to the Lord. Um, I want to tell you a story from my own past. Just about maybe eight years ago, I was a competitive athlete at a, at a university. I was recruited to run for them, and I was pursuing a degree in biological sciences. Sports was my life. Science was my life. That's the only thing I saw, apparently. I thought I was pursuing the Lord. And it was during this time, my second year at university, that I fell ill. I felt ill to the point that I had to go up to my coach and say, I'm sorry, I can't run anymore. I can't do this. I had to go and stop going to school. I was in my own house. And daily I began to wonder, God, I've lost everything that I put my hopes and dreams in. Everything that I was pursuing dissipated from my fingers. It was all gone. But not only that, I began to wonder if I was going to be a functioning part of society. I could barely leave my house. And day after day, like three to four times a week, I was in the hospital trying to figure out what was going on with me. In the end, they couldn't really figure out what was going on with me. And this was a time where I literally only had one option, to get on my knees. And so despite my great sadness in the midst of this time, the Lord gave me hope. He gave me hope in him that I couldn't find anywhere else. I couldn't find in the doctors. I couldn't find it in family. I couldn't find in anyone but Christ during that time. But now looking at Ruth, Ruth had an option. She had an option to go back to a place of comfort, to satisfy or to try to fill or distract her from her sadness. But she chose God instead. She chose to seek the Lord and be obedient over her sadness. She knew the, the gods of the Moabites couldn't satisfy her. She knew finding a young husband couldn't satisfy her. Well, I didn't have a decision. I could only get on my knees. Ruth was obedient beyond her sadness to seek the Lord. So Ruth truly left everything, every sense of comfort to seek the Lord because the Lord's presence was with the Jewish people. So I am going to now focus on how not just Ruth is the focal point of this story, but even Boaz. Boaz displays a great character or a lot of characters of Christ-likeness. So I'm going to read from chapter 2 of Ruth, verses 9 to 13. Or from 8 to 13. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink. What the young men, sorry, what the young men, ooh, there's a lot of fan up here. <laughs> okay, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz, said, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. 
The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So though Boaz displays many qualities of Christ throughout Ruth, I think in this section, Boaz really displays a lot of Christ-likeness. So the first one we see is Boaz protects Ruth. He finds a field for her to glean in, a field for her to get food for her and Naomi. She, he, makes sure, he makes sure that she is protected, that she's not going to be assaulted by anyone else. Christ also is our protector. I'm not going to read of Christ um, because there's a lot but I'd like you to take note of them so Christ is also our protector and this can be found in 1st John 5 18 and secondly he feeds her he provides sustenance he also offers her the opportunity to have water he provides her basic needs and we could also find this 19 and also we see that Boaz comforts her Though he is comforted, she is comforted in the midst of the fact that she's protected and fed, but she's comforted also in the fact that she knows that he is on her side. And we also see this in Christ's likeness in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. But we also see that Boaz favors her, finds great favor in her. He asked, who is this lady who is this lady that's in my field? So he heard about her. He knew the story that she left everything to seek God and to help Naomi. <laughs> so he had great favor in her because he saw the heart that she had to serve the Lord and to care for Naomi, whom is someone that at this point she's technically not really related to because her husband has passed away. But we also see how Christ favors us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. We see this because though we are... Sorry, I think that's my fault. <laughs> uh, so though we are sinners, Christ loves us. And we know that at the end of everything, God favors us, and he has good things prepared for us when looking heavenward. And, and of course, even in daily situations that we face. Fifthly, we see that despite that Ruth is a Moabite, whom the Jews actually were not supposed to marry outside of their own. But Boaz, with his great love and tender care, tells her that he will care for her. Because at first, when Ruth goes up and proposes to Boaz, Boaz says, actually, I'm not your first kinsman redeemer, but if the first kinsman denies, I will marry you. So no matter what, she had this hope. He loved her. And we can also see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. How while we're still sinners, how we're still foreigners to Christ, Christ died for us, and he welcomes us to him and to his side. And lastly, we see that he redeems her. In the very end, Boaz marries her, redeems her so she can have land, so Naomi can actually have a generation following because they have a child. 
Naomi actually will have a name, a legacy that follows her. But we also see that Christ redeems us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. But then after hearing about Boaz and about Ruth, how can we actually practically live out or obey God in the midst of our sadness? So the first point is that we should admit that we're even sad. I actually come from a family where we don't admit that we're sad too much. I mean, I saw some sort of sadness. Every so often they would notice I was sad. But really, I hid the fact that I was sad, and I never dealt with it. I either ran, I did sports, I did activities, but I never dealt with my sadness. There was also a neighbor of mine when growing up. He, he actually, I, he was married to this beautiful bride. His bride fell ill with cancer, and within about two years, she passed away. Not only that, her only son, or his only son, decided to not be in contact with him anymore. He lost his dog, he lost, which was his only companion at that point, right? He lost his dog, and then he was just having great struggles in family. People were just passing away. And so people at his work came up to him and said, you know, if you just admit that you're sad, if you admit that you're going through these things, we can help you out financially. But he wouldn't want to admit to the fact that he was sad. And in the end, he ended up losing his job and all financial resources. And in the end, he lost his home. Now, there are, I guess we could say, consequences if we don't admit to our sadness. Because instead of admitting to them and giving them to the Lord, we can dwell in them. And there's consequences for that. So I think we should be admitting to these things. It's a hard thing for me to admit when I'm sin, still. It's a lesson that I'm still learning. But once we admit, we should sacrifice these periods of time as sadness unto the Lord. We need to sacrifice them. Because if we struggle to admit them, clearly it's going to be a sacrifice. We need to, bring, we need to bring it before the Lord. Just like Ruth went to the feet of Boaz and admitted that she was sad, right? She lost her husband. She lost everything. But she went before the feet of Boaz. We also need to go before the feet of Christ and acknowledge that we are sad. Tell him what we're sad about. Maybe we're sad about something that's happening now, or maybe we've been sad about something that happened, who knows, years ago. Sometimes we don't want to admit that we're sad. But if we sacrifice it to the Lord, he gives us promises, so some of the promises would be that he will never leave you or forsake you. And this is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Also, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, it says, God who comforts the downcast. When we are downcast, when we are sad, he provides comfort. In Isaiah 9, 6, it's talking about Christ. One of the names that is given to Christ is that he's a wonderful counselor. If we don't know what we're doing in the midst of our sadness, but we sacrifice it to him, he promises that he's going to be our wonderful counselor so we can be obedient in the midst of our sadness. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, it says that he has given us eternal comfort, a good hope through grace. Of course, this is looking more towards the heavenward redemption, right? Of course, the story of Ruth and Boaz is just a symbol of how Christ redeems us in the very end. Not to say that Christ won't redeem us now, and not to say that we'll go through times of sadness, but God will be there to comfort us. In the end, we can look 
to our eternity, that we'll have eternal comfort and we'll have hope through that. So lastly is to fellowship. The fourth point or fourth application we should take away is fellowship. We're not supposed to do these things alone. God didn't make us just to stand alone and try to handle things by ourselves, but he has us to have fellowship with one another in the bride of Christ. So if there's any sadness in your life right now or an area of your life you have struggled to admit to you, or that sadness in your life that has been long ago or even currently, I would like you to surrender it to the Lord and have hope. So we're going to have some up in the front for prayer and some in the back for prayer if you would like to receive some prayer. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast. Please send us your feedback by commenting below or by emailing floodlilongwe at gmail.com.